to give me back my boat. I'm gonna sail if she'll float. Yes, I've got them river blues. I'm going back to Muscle Shoals. Times getting better there, I'm told, boys. I've got them river blues. The Red River is getting deeper and wider as the first signs of spring arrive. We'll get the latest on the newly revised flood outlook for the Red River Valley from the North Central River Forecast Center in Chanhassen, Minnesota. And with more and more stories of climate change circulating the globe, there's some potential good news on the global warming front from, believe it or not, northern Minnesota. We're kicking off the spring season, weather fans. Welcome to Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello again, everybody, and thanks for joining us on our weekly weather adventure. I'm Stephen John, sitting in the next few weeks for Paul Hutner. But, of course, our other jet streaming team members are here with me today. Dr. Mark Seeley, professor of climatology and meteorology at the University of Minnesota, and NPR meteorologist Craig Edwards. Happy spring, fellas. Wonderful week of weather we've been having, Stephen. I wow. finally shed the winter parka, <laughs> walk around, and we had 67 degrees uh, here in, locally in the Twin Cities, we're able to walk around in shirt sleeves at least one day this week. And I think Craig Edwards forecasted just right on the nose, didn't he? <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, I enjoyed getting the barbecue grill out the other <laughs> night and cooking up some hamburgers. So uh, can't have that soon enough, if you ask me. It's a beautiful week in uh, the weather. In the headlines, weather headlines this week, researchers say the food chain in Antarctica is being altered by changing wind patterns that are linked to global warming. In this past week's issue of the journal Science, the researchers report that plankton, the planet's most basic food source, is declining in the northern portions of the Antarctic Peninsula. That, they say, may be what's behind a sharp drop in the populations of Adelie penguins, which require a colder climate, and an increase in the warmer weather chinstrap penguins. The report says the change reflects shifting patterns of cloud cover, ice formation, and winds. A separate report in the same edition of Science raises the possibility that new wind patterns could be causing deep water to rise to the surface more quickly, releasing stored carbon dioxide that could add to global warming. We'll hear more about a Minnesota angle on efforts to store carbon a little later on on our show today. Also this week, a new study of ocean currents based on computer modeling published online in the journal Nature Geoscience finds that any sea level rise from man-made climate change will most drastically affect the northeastern United States. Some scientists have been predicting a two- to three-foot rise in global sea levels by the year 2100 due to global warming. But the author of this new study says the increase will be greater and faster in the Northeast, with Boston being one of the worst hit among major cities. So if the levels rise three feet, another eight inches or so would be added for Boston, New York, and other spots from the mid-Atlantic to New England. The study suggests that Miami and much of the southeast would get about two inches above the global average. San Francisco would get less than an inch extra. Mark and Craig, what kind of conclusions do you draw, if any, from these latest findings? Well, uh, Stephen, I think this uh, study, I'm not uh, up to date on the details of it, but it certainly alludes to the fact that as the ice sheets in the polar latitudes melt, there will first be a rise in the polar latitude seas. 
and so maybe that's part of it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is is that the uh, climate system of the planet is warming differentially, and it is warming more rapidly in the higher latitudes. So from the standpoint of thermal expansion of the ocean, that is increase in sea level simply due to increasing temperature of the water itself, there will probably be a proportionally proportionately larger rise in some of the northern latitude areas. At least that's my take on it, Craig. What do you think? Well, it sounds to me like you're better off being in San Francisco than you are in Boston, for one thing. But what I'm thinking, Mark, is all of these studies that are are, are out there that are pointing to the year 2100, uh, we're, we're 2009, should should there be some thought process going on among city planners of incorporating this type of information to future planning? So after this generation passes away, that somebody said that we actually took into account all of this research and that now property that uh, we have along the coastline, we should already be start making preparations for rethinking landscape use and that sort of thing. So I'm just wondering, uh, we if we do science, let's do science that makes a difference and start acting on it with the information we have at hand. I don't think there's anything to lose by starting incorporating that information into city planning, particularly when you talk about rises of sea level in the northeast populated areas. No, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And more public discussion of our vulnerability, I think, would certainly be a wise community uh, investment at this time. Yeah, there's a hazardous mitigation expert, Dennis Maletti, says uh, oftentimes with disasters, he calls them disasters by design, and some of it is caused by where we choose to live. And uh, we, we can sort of allude to that to the Red River Valley as well as we talk more about that later today. Well, the first signs of spring are starting to make an appearance across the country. This past Sunday saw the buzzards making their annual arrival in Hinkley, Ohio. The swallows are set to return to San Juan Capistrano, California tomorrow. And this Friday brings the vernal equinox, the official first day of spring in the northern hemisphere. But along the border between the Dakotas and Minnesota river watchers are anxiously watching the skies and the melting snowpack for signs of flooding. Last Friday, the National Weather Service issued the latest update on the flood outlook for the Red River Valley of the North. Scott Doomer is hydrologist in charge at the North Central River Forecast Center in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and is with us to explain what's in store for the area. Scott, thanks for joining us today on Jet Streaming. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. What were the major updates for the region, and what kind of flood season may we uh, be looking at based on these findings? Well, we're expecting an active flood season for the Red River of the North Basin this spring. Uh, We're certain that there will be major flooding for locations such as Fargo and Grand Forks. In fact, uh, as early as December, we were predicting a 2 and 3 chance or 66% chance of major flooding for Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, Currently here, we're predicting about a 1 in 3 or 33% chance of exceeding what actually happened in 1997 for Fargo, North Dakota, and a 10% chance of reaching the 97 levels in Grand Forks. Uh, As many remember, Fargo came out uh, largely unscathed from the 1997 floods, but it was disastrous for Grand Forks. But now, thanks to permanent flood protection, Grand Forks and East Grand Forks are better equipped for a 1997 type of an event. Uh, Scott Craig Edwards here. So as we look around the rest of Minnesota, there wasn't much of a snowfall and a rather dry uh, fall in southeast Minnesota. What kind of impacts do you see? I know you issue probabilistic forecasts. What type of impacts do you see on other rivers in Minnesota, such as the Minnesota and the Mississippi River here in the local metropolitan area? 
Uh, it's uh, considerably drier in the Mississippi and Minnesota uh, river basins. One thing, one question we get quite often is people don't realize that the uh, Red River of the North uh, is formed on uh, the confluence of the Bois de Sioux and the Ottertail Rivers along Wapton, North Dakota, and Breckenridge, Minnesota border. Uh, and that people don't understand that the Red River flows north along the North Dakota Minnesota border towards Canada, and it actually f flows up into Lake Winnipeg uh, up in Canada. And so it does not uh, impact the Mississippi or Minnesota watersheds, and that's something that um, the general public doesn't always um, know, uh, know that type of information. Uh, Scott, Mark Seeley here. Um, we're aware that uh, uh, your your flood forecasts are very, very uh, important this time of year and are, are followed by uh, certainly units of local government along the watershed, but can you describe the body of users that follow this and also uh, talk a little bit about what data go into your flood forecasts? Sure. Um, well, uh, federal, state, and local governments, along with uh, emergency management uh, first responders, as well as the general public uh, that have interests along the rivers, uh, all use our forecasts. Uh, we have outlooks, and that's uh, the long-term forecast you're hearing about now, and they're used in flood preparation and planning, and they're updated every two weeks in the spring and monthly the rest of the year. Uh, once the snow begins to melt and the rivers actually start to rise, our river flood forecasts are updated every day or more often when conditions change. So the outlook portion of what you described, uh, you're, you're updating on a two-week interval. And imagine such things as snow water uh, content, uh, depth of ground frost, and a variety of other things are still important to those outlooks. Exactly. The soil moisture from last fall uh, goes into lar into play with this, and it was extremely wet last fall, and then the uh, ground froze up solid, almost like a chunk of ice, and then we did get a significant amount of snow and water in that snow content uh, throughout this last winter. The, yeah, uh, yes, go ahead. Scott, I, I wanted to ask you, is it, now the, the 1997 flood, there was this big news about how the Weather Service missed the forecast a little bit on the short side. How has the computer models changed uh, to adjust for uh, what's going on with the rivers? I know in the weather we talk about the different computer models. Do you have more than one computer flood model, and how has that changed since the 1997 flood? Yeah, in 1997, uh, our outlooks uh, were more of a back-of-the-envelope type of calculation. But since then, uh, we now incorporate about 50 years' worth of climatological data and run it through our model with the current conditions and gives us a better uh, associated probability with what uh, the possible outrange of uh, 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 results could uh, occur. Uh, the primary, uh, primary model we use at the River Forecast Center here is called the Sacramento Soil Moisture Accounting Model, and we use that along with other various hydrology mo uh, modeling methods. But we also use, in addition to the hydrology models, we use hydraulic models such as uh, flood wave, dewapper, in the UNET model, and we're working also to Im incorporate uh, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, uh, it's called HEC-RAS model, in the next couple of years as well. Scott, the, the current weather pattern that we've had this week is really uh, diminishing the snow cover in many watersheds and uh, maybe at the same time thawing some of the shallow soil layers. What is, uh, what is the weather that we're experiencing this week going to do to the timing of a flood crest on the red? Well, uh, anytime you have snow cover rapidly diminishing, um, that that would exasper 
exacerbate the problem of overland flooding. Uh, overland flooding is uh, a, uh, aerial flooding. It's not tied to any specific stream or river. Uh, it covers an entire just entire watershed. And until uh, the ditches and uh, streams thaw out, the water or this overland flooding will have a hard time finding its way into the main channel of the Red River. Uh, once the channels do clear themselves, and if the temperature patterns continue, the timing of the spring's flood crest would increase. Uh, but at this time, it's still unclear if or when this all would occur. Say, so following up on Stephen's question, Scott, uh, I've been tracking the CPC outlook models this week, and uh, I'm sure your your gang there at the River Center has as well. At least out through the first through a few days of April. Um, it looks like the Red River Valley region could potentially see an inch and a half to two and a half inches of precipitation. At least some of that is suggested in the models. Um, that would not that would not be a good uh, input as far as looking at what the flood crest might do. I take it that would just make the situation worse. Is that correct? Uh, that is correct, uh, but it does depend if that precipitation falls as rain or snow, and also what temperatures follow immediately follow the storm. Um, uh, if that additional precipitation fell as rain, but then it immediately got cold afterwards, uh, it would continue to freeze the entire area, and we wouldn't immediately get a uh, get flooding going on. But uh, it, depending on the temperature pattern afterwards, uh, we'll definitely determine what would actually be the end result with that, whether it, uh, the river uh, forecast crest would end up being any higher than it would beforehand. It all really would depend on the melt. Scott, you have a number of hydrologists there with varying years of experience, and uh, you, you're the third hydrologist in charge since the flood of 1997. What is the value of having people that have experienced this type of flood on your staff, and how important are they to adding additional uh, credibility to the forecast as the rivers start to flow and the models are making their forecasts. How important is that individual forecast experience into tweaking the local forecast for the Red River? Uh, forecast is very, uh, uh, forecast experience is very valuable to the uh, river forecasting process. Uh, if you've gone through an event before and you've seen what can happen at a particular location, such as uh, what happened in 1997 in Grand Forks, uh, you're better equipped to handle it the next time. And so that that experience is just very, very valuable in the forecasting process and our our accuracy. Following up on that, uh, Scott, the 1997 flood, uh, in terms of both the Grand Forks National Weather Service uh, and the uh, Chanhassen office, there are still a good number of people working that uh, that worked on that flood back at that time, right? Uh, there's a, a few of them, that's correct. And, and so uh, that experience is going to come into play, uh, uh, I suppose, up to a point in terms of uh, looking at the models and making judgments about uh, the the models as we close in on this flood crest timing this spring. Uh, that's correct. Thinking about the people on the ground in the Red River Valley as we speak, is it too late for getting flood insurance? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it really depends on where you live in the Red River Basin. Uh, of course, climatologically, southern, the southern part of the basin is going to begin to flood sooner than the northern portions. It's important to note that there's a 30-day wait period until your policy goes into effect if you do indeed purchase flood insurance. So the sooner you purchase flood insurance, the better off you are. 
Uh, if you are in per interested in purchasing flood insurance, go to floodsmart.gov. Uh, remember that uh, flooding in that region is not always tied to spring snowmelt, however. Uh, there have been significant floods in that area due to summertime weather. So in that regard, I don't think it's ever too late to protect yourself from flooding. And personally, if I ever lived in a flood-prone area such as the Red River Valley, I, I would buy flood insurance every year. All right. Well, we'll uh, certainly be keeping an eye on the situation as time goes on. And Scott Doomer of the North Central River Forecast Center in Chanhassen will definitely be keeping an eye on the situation. Thanks for joining us today on Jet Streaming. Well, thanks for having me, guys. With plenty of stories in the news regarding climate change, you may wonder if there's anything the individual or even folks in the business world can do to fight back. The Northwoods of Minnesota may hold one key to fending off the effects of global climate change. The trees, the soil, and the humus on the forest floor all store carbon. And some landowners also think there may eventually be a profit to be made from that carbon storage. Minnesota Public Radio's Stephanie Hemphill explains. Healthy trees are what it's all about for John Ryala, a fourth-generation manager of 30,000 acres in north-central Minnesota. When he tromps into the woods at Sugar Hills, south of Grand Rapids, he scans the bare branches silhouetted against a deep blue sky and sees diversity. There's a basswood tree, there's a red oak tree, there's a maple tree, there's a birch tree. Off in the distance, I see some white pine tops. That kind of diversity is unusual in Minnesota, and it's great for his business. The Ryala companies produce construction lumber and hardwood veneers for cabinets and furniture. This particular stand was trimmed three years ago. Now the trees are about 10 feet apart. There are still some diseased and twisted trees here, and Ryala plans to cut them in a few years so the healthy trees can grow faster. Those thinnings won't be made into furniture, though. Ryala will be looking to sell those trees to other markets. Hopefully there will be a biomass market, a pulpwood market, and maybe maybe by then there will be some recognition for increasing the productivity of this site and we'd be able to get some carbon credit for it, too. So that's part of why we're watching this issue. That idea of getting carbon credits is what we're talking about here. It takes a long time for a tree to grow big enough to produce wood for construction or furniture. While the trees are growing, it would be nice to have a little income. And now there are markets set up to pay people like Ryala, who are managing their woods sustainably. One is the Chicago Climate Exchange. It's a voluntary cap-and-trade system. Dozens of companies, including Ford, IBM, and Cargill, commit to reducing their global warming emissions, and they can buy and sell the permits they get to emit greenhouse gases. They can also buy and sell offsets, projects that someone else undertakes to reduce emissions or to store carbon. And that's where this forest comes into play. That's where this forest comes into play because it, it scientifically it's proven and very well understood that there's carbon being consumed. Carbon dioxide is being consumed through the process of photosynthesis as, as this forest grows. So Ryala can calculate the amount of carbon his woods is storing and sell that as an offset on the Chicago Climate Exchange. When he cuts down a tree, that reduces the carbon storage, unless, and this is the amazing part, unless it's made into something that will last a long time. Something like what they make at the Ryala Mill. High-quality hardwood veneer, hardwood flooring, window frames. All of these products are, are going to go into an end use that's certainly of enough cost and enough value that they would last for a century, if not two centuries. The end result is that, that 
carbon that was originally sequestered by the forest uh, is still captured and has not been released back into the atmosphere. So the carbon stored in those products can be traded on the Chicago Climate Exchange. It doesn't mean Ryla would have to dramatically change his business model, but the additional cash would make it easier for him to manage the forest for maximum productivity. It's all new. Farmers are a little farther along in the carbon storage business. By one estimate, about 10 million acres of farmland across the country are devoted to carbon sequestration. Only a handful of forest owners are participating in the exchange, and so far the price is low. One farmer in western Minnesota planted pine trees on seven acres and got a whopping $35 check as his first payment. But participants expect if the U.S. eventually has a mandatory cap-and-trade program, as President Obama wants, prices will go up. And in the meantime, people are learning more about the ecological gifts the forests provide. Mark Jacobs is the land commissioner in Aitken County. He recently conducted an inventory of how much carbon is being stored on county forest land. He says it's the equivalent of 24,000 cars. These studies demonstrated that our forest management practices do store a significant amount of carbon. Whether we get any money for that or not, I think that's, that's an important, uh, important thing. If Aitken County decides to sell carbon credits on the Chicago Climate Exchange, the money will be shared by the county, school districts, and township governments. Stephanie Hemphill, Minnesota Public Radio News, Grand Rapids. And now it's time for the website of the week. Craig Edwards, what have you found for us? Well, Stephen, it's hard to believe, but it's been more than 10 years since the deployment of what was called the Next Generation Radar in the National Weather Service, or the Doppler Radar. And there's finally going to be an upgrade to that radar system. A contract was recently led to Barron Incorporated, and that's going to upgrade the radars to what we call dual polarization. We've been talking about that that before on jet streaming. That's going to help determine rainfall intensity rates, uh, rainfall accumulation, also hail size. So I suggest for more information on that, you go to the National Severe Storms Laboratory website, which is nssl.noaa.gov, to find out more about how this dual polarization radar will work. And actually, the deployment is going to take about three to four years, so some portions of the country may not see this until 2012, 2013. All right, that's gov. And for our weather words of the week, Mark Seeley, you've come up with a couple of interesting ones. Uh, what in the heck is frazzle ice? Well, it fits well with our discussion about uh, spring snowmelt flooding, Stephen. Uh, Frazzle ice is not a frequently used term, but it refers to ice crystals that form in supercooled water but beneath the surface Hmm. because the water tends to be moving along, so you can't necessarily get surface ice formation. Anyway, these ice crystals form under the surface and along channel edges, and sometimes they build up into masses that are fairly extensive. And as we get into the spring snowmelt season, sometimes these ice formations tend to block the channel flow. Hmm. In so doing, oftentimes we see those referred to as ice dams. Right. And so this time of year, though, they can lead to some local flooding if they, if they are uh, in evidence as a lot of the uh, runoff is starting to come along the channel flow. And another uh, term you've come up with is Tyndall flowers. What what kind of flowers are Tyndall flowers? Well, it's interesting. This isn't a botanical flower, no. Stephen. This is a flower in 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 form 
But uh, John Tyndall was a famous British physicist who studied the uh, uh, way light interacts with ice. And uh, it's very interesting that this would, would be named for a, a, a British physicist. Anyway, what happens with our frozen lakes in these northern climates this time of year, of course, is they start to more uh, they start to absorb more of the sun's energy, mm-hmm. but they do differentially, and so as the sun's rays penetrate the ice surface, they differentially melt the ice underneath, and you get these odd forms uh, due to refraction within the ice. And sometimes you look underneath, if, you, if you're looking at this lake ice, mm-hmm. you look underneath the surface and you see these very odd structures, right. oftentimes hexagonal mm-hmm. in shape, or sometimes they just quite frankly look like flower petals. Uh. And so those are called Tyndall flowers. And this is the time of year for observing those sorts of things. Is it safe to go out and look at Tyndall flowers? Well, you have to be careful with that. Okay. I mean, on some of our more northern lakes, which still have very thick ice cover, you're all right there. Mm-hmm. But this time of year, we're losing our ice cover fairly rapidly. So be safe. As far as our listener feedback this week on Jet Streaming, we heard from Elena Williams in Egan, Minnesota, and she asks, I am wondering about a website that will tell me the frost depth currently in the ground and as it goes out of the ground this spring. Are we average? Are we late? I have looked around at the U of M but could not find anything. I'm sure that's not too much of a weather geek question for your crew. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a good question, and unfortunately, um, I don't have a great answer for her because, in my experience, the frost depths are not routinely uh, 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 reported on the web. I do occasionally report them in my newsletter, Minnesota Weather Talk, so if she wishes to subscribe to that, that's fine. As far as a current update, uh, Stephen, the soil is starting to thaw anywhere from the top three to top one foot of soil in our Minnesota region is thawed out, but we still, believe it or not, have frost down to 40 inches Hmm. in some places. And so that's going to be something closely monitored uh, in the context of the spring snowmelt flood forecast because as long as the soil is frozen at some layer, it can't take in this uh, moisture that we're getting from the snowmelt. And it's got to be a real variable situation depending on the temperatures and the snow cover during the winter. Oh, it sure is. Across our region, uh, frost depths may vary anywhere from a foot up to uh, beyond 40 inches in some of the northern soils of Minnesota. All right. Well, another great show. Thanks, Mark and Craig. Enjoyed talking to you, Stephen. Looking forward to those spring thunderstorms, Mark. You know, we keep making that noise with thunder for our website, so we're about due for some thunderstorms here in the upper Midwest. I hope they don't come too early, Craig. Well, keep them down in the southern portion of the state, certainly not on the Red River Valley. Yeah, they don't need anything like that right now. That wraps this week's Jet Streaming. For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and to sound guru Steve Griffith, I'm Stephen John. Be sure to keep your ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky. 